Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, one of the tech editors, and with me is a whole cacophony of our road technical editors, technical writers and writers, because uh, we're in the middle of the Tour de France um, and we thought we'd talk today about the best ever Tour de France tech. So... Joining me, we've got Senior Road Technical Editor, Warren Rossiter. Hello. We've got uh, uh, Matthew, I'm not sure what your title is at the moment, but we've got Matthew Leverage. Um, what are you, Matthew? Matthew? Uh, senior Writer. Senior Writer, excellent. And we've got Simon Bromley as well, who is an absolute geek when it comes to all things tour. Uh, Simon, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks, Tom. Excellent. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the best bits of tech from the Tour de France. Obviously, there are hundreds of bikes whizzing their way around France, hopefully, at the moment. Obviously, we don't quite know what's happening because we are recording this um, ahead of time, but um, we'll be setting off in a couple of weeks. So let's crack on before I start waffling too much about what may or may not be happening uh, in France. And let's start with the the best question or the classic question. What is the best all-time Tour de France bike. Uh, and we'll start with you, Warren, because um, I know you've got a few tasty ideas in there. I mean, the best ever bike is uh, it's such a tough one. I mean, there, there were bikes that just changed things. I mean, but but the one that immediately springs to mind for me would be 1989, Greg LeMond. You know, mm-hmm. Greg LeMond, legend in himself, but he's he's the guy that, that really embraced all the new technology. So, you know, use tri-bars. That one basically won him the tour to get that position um he used an aero helmet you know he used clipless pedals one of the first riders used clipless pedals as well you know the, the original looks were massive great big bulky things where they've basically just stolen a ski binding and right. nailed it to a pedal <laughs> you know so i think you know when you're looking at Le Monde, uh, and the, the kind of the focus that he had on embracing new tech pretty much any of the any of the bikes that he rode are are kind of flagships to the future sort of thing okay so would you would you agree with that yeah i think i think 
I, I was going to say um, the Boardman Lotus kind of 110 monocoque road frame, but I suppose if you're talking, you know, talking the revolutionary moment was arguably, I think, as was says, uh, you know, with, with kind of Greg LeMond and the tri bars. I, I think, yeah, it, it's, it's so, as, as was says, it's such a difficult one. For me, the, the Lotus 110, that kind of monocoque frame, which did, was designed by Mike Burrows, who uh, did the TCR and lots of other weird and wonderful bicycles is still kind of incredible. And the fact that they, or the UCI banned those kind of designs meant that it hasn't really been bettered in cycling since then. Obviously we have some sort of, it's kind of children in triathlon, but, um, but I think, yeah, the Lotus 110 was a particularly good looking bike. Matthew, yeah, you got your hand up. I can't disagree with any of that. Those are fantastic choices, but I was going to go unapologetically mainstream and modern and say the Trek 5500 OCLV and the Madone that followed on from it because you can't ignore, because of the brighter that those bikes are associated with, you can't ignore the influence those have had. And also they were kind of an inflection point between classic-looking bikes and then they were proper carbon bikes, but they still used quite traditional construction methods because essentially that was a lugged carbon frame, even though the lugs were kind of disguised. But then that gradually morphed into the modern carbon bikes that we know today. So quite a significant one, obviously, associated with a certain Texan rider of ill repute. Is, is, is that name a little bit like Voldemort or something? Are we not allowed to say uh, Mr. <laughs> I think Armstrong's you, I name? Think you're, I think you know. No, we we can might. say his name. He, he might. His lawyers might appear. You never know. But actually, <laughs> okay, so that's my first choice. Second choice, this is a personal one. Because I think that for a lot of people, the bikes that you care about in the Tour de France are maybe the ones that were significant at a moment in your cycling career. So for me, I'm going to pick Mark Cavendish's original first-generation Scott Addict when he was riding for, uh, I think it was Columbia HTC at that point, went through several iterations, the yellow, black and white colour scheme, deep section aero wheels. Mm. It was a super lightweight frame. I think it was the lightest production frame possibly when it came out. It was certainly right up yeah, there yeah. stunningly it stunningly was, it, light it bike. definitely was yeah you're right on that one Matthew I mean um, I, I, I tested that bike when it came out and uh, which showed yeah, how long and, I've been and in it's this incredible game, but, and it went on it, it was, evolved it, it was um, it was game changing in, in how light it was it was frighteningly so especially from a mainstream producer um, yeah so, I, I, you know talking you know I would also say if you're talking modern era um, I'd go back to 2002 Cervelo Soloist you know, the bike that invented aero road bikes before anybody knew what aero road bikes were, you know, and that bike was good. And especially when the, you know, the SLC, SL version came out, which is their first carbon aero road bike, you know, Schleck won on that bike going up outdoors. So people talk about aero road bikes not being for everything, you know, Frank, Frank Schleck won a mountain stage on an aero road bike. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just absolutely defined a complete genre with, with that bike. Matthew, what are you? As you say, it's funny how those aero bikes have evolved because what was called an aero bike then, it, it, I mean, Cervelo essentially started out in the tri world, didn't they? And they had these super skinny aerofoil section tubes. This was long before anyone was doing truncated aerofoils or anything. So an aero bike then was a very different looking animal. But yeah, it was really trend setting in that respect. So yeah, another great choice. It's too many to choose from. Do you think, um, jumping back to Le Monde at the start, you sort of mentioned that he was one of the first riders to really take on you know, all these new bits of tech. I feel that the modern sort of peloton is slightly different in their inflexibility in, in terms of kit. But do you think there are any riders out there who who maybe would be taking on these uh, new and more interesting, whether it's products or, or positions? You know, is there any flexibility for them to t- to do what Le Monde did? 
Well, I think now we're we're so sort of governed by rules and, and regs when it becomes comes down to kit. The actual more innovation you're seeing is more in the um, it's more in analysis, it's more in data capture, it's more in it. You know, it's uh, it's Chris Froome staring at his head unit. It, you know that that's the that's the modern innovation. Um, it would be great to see the you know the rules really you know relaxed a little bit so we could see some truly good innovation in in actual design. Simon, the, that that bike that you mentioned was was fairly rule breaking. But what, what were you gonna? Yeah, I think you know. I think you know, there are always going to be um, riders who are more conservative with their tech choices, and riders who aren't. You know, we we did see Alexander Kristoff, for example, trialing tubeless road tires at uh, the Cobble Classics a couple of years ago. Now it didn't didn't actually go that well for him, which was a bit unfortunate. I think he was just a bit unlucky. But there are certain riders out there who do try these things. I think Victor Campenarts is quite a good, quite a good example of that. He's he's a bit quirky and often quite willing you know like the lotto sudal team were trialing a kind of gel which had little uh micro beads in it that they were putting on their legs in order to kind of increase the turbulence around their legs and reduce the aerodynamic drag i mean the uci quickly stepped in to to ban it but there clearly there are people looking around the margins for these things but you're right there is a certain and I suppose, you know, for a lot, we have to remember for these professionals, it is it is a job. And so they're wary of taking on and trying new things that potentially could cost them a race when they believe that, you know, the gains might be small. So there's always going to be that element of conservatism, I guess. Didn't um, Team Sky have that, uh, well, that skin suit with the little ruffles on to, to trip the air a little bit as it went over, you know? Yeah. So, pieces, isn't there? But maybe not yeah. something quite as bonkers as what Le Mans was doing or, or what um, Boardman was managing to ride. Yeah, skin suits are a really big one, and you know I think, you know, again this this that certain Texan who I you know I can't remember his name, um, but he was quite influential with his work with Nike in the early two thousands around the kind of um, the skin suit development that they did, and uh, prior to that, clothing wasn't seen as a kind of a really big aerodynamic. Uh, you know, performance gain, but uh, actually, obviously, because your body's, you know, the, the kind of biggest source of drag, it makes a huge, huge difference. And yeah, Team Sky and you know, uh, you know, Lotto, Lotto Vis or Yumbo Visma, whatever they're called now, they're they're very big with that as well. And I'm sure all the teams uh, have very fancy skin suits these days. I guess uh, you know, money's a uh, money's a big factor in that, Warren. Yeah, I just um, going back to the the actual clothing thing, you know. Um, if we can go back to a time when I think I'm the only person on this podcast that was born, um, mid 1970s, you got Tony Mayer um, founded ASOS, and he he borrowed Lycra from from Dupont, which they were using in racing ski suits, and invented the Lycra short. Now that is something that really did change, you know, it it, it changed professional riding, it changed everybody's riding really. You'd gone from having to wear these kind of double thick wool wool based shorts with a you know, with a leather pad inside to this, this, you know, super lightweight material that gave you support and gave you everything else. And, you know, um, and all of those developments kind of are from that cutoff point there, you know. Cool. Well, we're, we're, we're actually straying on to the, um, the next sort of thing we wanted to talk about, um, which was the most iconic piece of, of kit. Before <laughs> I will go on to that, can I just apologise to listeners who might be able to hear the fan of my laptop uh, going absolutely <laughs> mad. We're on Microsoft Teams doing this so that we can have at least some sort of face-to-face contact while we're, while we're recording. Um, but my fan's going bonkers, so uh, apologies. Uh, I think it might be the same for a couple of other guys as well. So we'll move on to those um, I- iconic pieces of game. We've already talked about Le Mans um, tri-bars, but um, 
And we've actually mentioned the deeper wheels as well. But um, Simon, I think you were mentioning lightweights, early carbon wheels. Yeah, so I suppose... Um... You know, we, we were talking just before this and Warren was correct in saying that Campagnolo released the kind of first aero wheels and I think those were deep section aluminium wheels but when Lightweight released their carbon aero wheels I believe those were one of the first designs and but they became very iconic in the tour because you know riders like Jan Ulrich used them and there's a famous anecdote that's saying that 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 Texan again he was he would have to pay for wheels which he wasn't really used to doing so and apparently that ruffled a few feathers but um, yeah the sight of of Ulrich and and Armstrong climbing mountains with those kind of yeah lightweight carbon wheels is pretty iconic yeah. in the early two thousands. Yeah, the, I mean the first guy the first guy to actually use those in the tour was Bjarni Reese when he won in ninety six. But both Reese and then Ulrich in ninety seven were running what is now known as a lightweight wheel, but it was um, it was Mister Obermeyer and um, and yeah, partner that right. put them together. But all of those wheels were branded. Um, branded something else you know that's something we've lost okay. we've lost in modern tours yeah. where you see you know real tech products which um are bearing the name that you know uh isn't certainly not who manufactured them you know i can remember being at the tour of belgium probably about a decade ago and and watching the uh um i can't remember which which trek team it was back then probably probably discovery i think or it might have been the one post that but all of their time trial bikes driving past me great you know huge great big disc wheels on the back of them and you look at that and going wow they've got an interesting golf ball pattern with little z stuff printed on them but they say bomb trader what's going on there you know and you you always see that sort of thing you always you see that sort of thing going on you still see the odd uh, swapped saddle don't you and and there's a lot of teams for example that use fmb tubulars but they'll like scribble over the logo I was going to say um, black tape and black marker pen certainly have played a a large part in tours gone past and uh, probably (laughs) in tours future as well yeah, That's yeah. Right. I mean, it's like if you read, um, um, you know, uh, talking talk about those uh, old American dominating tour teams. Um, if you read Tyler Hamilton's book and he's talking about like the the trek Matthew was talking about, you know, Tyler's wasn't being made in Wisconsin; it was being made somewhere else in America um, by another another fine carbon manufacturer. And you know, so it's a it's a really interesting read. So you know. Well, look, that was uh, anything stood out for you, Matthew, over the past few years in terms of kit. So, rather than what uh, the riders themselves are mostly riding or wearing, the I, I'm all about. I really like the spectacle of the Tour de France, and there are certain sort of iconic sites associated with it. And I was going to choose the Mavic neutral support bikes because there's always a car load of these yellow bicycles, which they've been different things over the years. So the current ones. Uh, Canyon Ultimate Carbon Bikes. I think the previous generation were Cannondale Cad 9s, I think. And there have been certain high-profile incidents where pros have had to ride briefly one of these bikes because their team car couldn't get to them at a critical point in a stage. And that, that yellow Mavic branding is so intrinsically linked to the Tour de France. I think that's really iconic and very cool bikes as well. Am I right in thinking that the the bikes that were sort of at least most prominent on the tops of the cars were set up for you know the tour leaders and the and the team leaders? Yeah, that's right. I think it's the top three GC contenders normally have a Mavic bike set up for them, um, and then they'll have kind of general selection to try and cover other stuff. But obviously, they have problems with pedal compatibility and stuff, isn't that right, Simon? Yeah, I just I can't I can't help but. Uh, poor Chris Froome I can't help but bring up his um, ride up month on two where he uh, you know when the crowd closed in and he and Richie Port crashed into the back of a motorbike breaking Froome's bike and he ended up running 
up Von too. I think this was 2016. But um, I can't, yeah, if that's not the year, I apologize, dear listeners. But the Mavic neutral service car offered him a bike and he couldn't ride it because it didn't have the right pedals. And so he ended up running up Mon Von 2, spawning an incredible I mean, yeah. video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the ultimate the ultimate um, Mavic sport bike is, is Jens Voigt. You know, yes. that was just yeah, the tiny uh, astonishing one. because it was, you know, at least five or six sizes too small for him. You know, that that was just so iconic. Did I not see at least, was it two years ago at least, some one of the... the the, the yellow Mavic bikes having little dropper posts on them, little cable operator ones, so you could... Um, I, I believe the current the ones do actually have dropper right. posts. I'm not sure how much travel they've got, but it makes perfect sense, obviously, because it eliminates one of the biggest problems with picking a random bike. Yeah, I mean, in, speaking of, um, obviously, kit that has made a difference to, you know, to the race, to the tour, you know, whether it's a neutral service bike that, you know, a, a GC leader's had to jump on or whatever it is... Um, we were discussing before we started the podcast about um, bits of tech that have made the biggest differences in cycling. And, and Warren, you mentioned Campagnolo as, as an incredibly influential brand when it comes yeah. to the tech I mean, that goes I, into I think bikes. that's the thing, you know, if you, if you think about that sort of, you know, the, the it, it tours past, Campagnolo was so, so dominant in, in just providing new technology and everything. Uh, essentially what Shimano do now, you know, the, the roles have been completely reversed. So if we go back to, you know, 1950s, you know, 1951, Campag released... Um, the Grand Sport Rehydralia, which is a, a parallel, parallelogram Rehydralia, what we consider to be the modern thing. You know, um, Hugo Kobley, you know, rode and won on that first first time of asking. And then if you just jump forward, like, to the early 60s, I think, 63, 110 of the 130 riders in the tour were using that rear mech. It, it was just, it, you know, it just swept everything else aside. Um, and then if you go into the mid-70s, when Campag brought out Super Record, um, for the first time, I mean, this they did. They did astonishing things that we think are really, really modern. They had a tie axle bottom bracket. They had tie spindles on their hubs, titanium bolts on, on, on all the hardware and all their mechs and on the chain rings, etc. You know, it's just these prototype lightweight parts which everybody has been chasing ever since. That, that Campag were doing this in, you know, in 1974, and then you know, jump into the 90s and we were talking about aero wheels. Campag brought out the Shimao. Um, this was an aluminium mid section aero wheel based on a nc naca profile um and it was the first time we'd ever seen aero wheels used in normal road racing you know not just for time trials could you expand on what that aero profile is naca oh i can never remember which completely is but it's north of north american council of aeronautics or something like that it's the shape of wings Right, <laughs> basically, you know the profile. You know they they based a, a rim on that, and yeah. Sorry, Matthew. Do you... I was going to say it's just really interesting looking at the peloton now. How little presence Campag has compared to that, and yeah. I think it's quite surprising. And you have to wonder if Campag is looking at pro racing right now, thinking like we need to get back in there. They need to make a real splash because obviously they've got twelve speed group sets now. They've got EPS. They've got yeah. Yeah, they've, yeah, got they've the always kit, been they've but... always been such an um, you know amazingly innovative company. Um, it, it is it is strange that the, the the balance has shifted so 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 far out of balance. You know, I mean, what, what's happened to to drivetrains within the Pro Tour? I mean, obviously Shimano seemed to be utterly dominant. And is is there much happening with SRAM at the moment? They had a little, you know, they, they had a few teams for a little while, but a couple of years ago at least that had dropped off. I as think well. there's how many have they got now? Is it two? So it's still, uh, it's still say, not very many then, is it? No, really? no, no it's, it's heavily dominated by Trek Shimano, and Movistar sure. are sponsored by SRAM. Yeah. And um, 
Camp Agnolo are still with UAE Team Emirates and Lotto Sudal, but I think the rest is Shimano. Um, and But yeah, obviously a lot of these, we don't know how many of these teams are choosing to, to go with Shimano and how many of them are being sponsored by Shimano and just taking the money. So whilst I'm a big fan of Shimano, I, you know, I, you do have to, Camp Agnolo is a much smaller company and you do have to wonder if some of the kind of, you know, the kind of qu- the quietening down of, of Camp Agnolo in the pro peloton is more to do with money perhaps rather than pure performance. But I don't really know. Well, yeah, I think, I think that's always been the case, isn't it? For, for everything, you know. Going back to um, those bits that have made the biggest difference, does anything stand out for you, Simon, at all? Obviously, apart from Boardman's um, funny Lotus bike. Yeah, so I think, you know, again, this is the kind of one that Greg LeMond was really on board with in the early days, or I suppose at the back end of his career, but the early days of this technology. And in 1993, Greg LeMond was one of the first riders to use an SRM power meter. Okay. Um, and obviously, you know, we all know how that's kind of gone on to you know, really revolutionize racing, training, and, uh, you know... It, obviously there is that there's the whole meme of Chris Froome staring at his stem and looking at his power numbers. But, um, but yeah, that, 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 I think that's made a, made a massive, massive difference because, you know, for anyone who knows, for anyone who has a power meter, being able to track what you're, how hard you're turning the pedals in a kind of consistent and meaningful way just means you can pace yourself and track your training and track your training load so much more effectively than if you didn't have that. And cycling is quite a unique sport for this. There aren't many sports where you can track what you're doing quite so precisely. So it's made a, it's yeah, it's made a really, really big difference. Do you think it's made too much of a difference? Cause you very rarely nowadays see riders blow up and that always used to be, you know, one of those kind of epic things. So somebody would just attack, attack, attack and then blow up spectacularly. And now I think, because everybody's got that data to hand, you can you can manage performance. You know, it, at least the, the dominance that we've seen from Team Sky, Stroke, Ineos, etc., that they they can just literally, you know, control every element. But you know, I I, I do wish for the days of crazy attacks. You know, the likes of a Pantani or an Ulrich or you know, just just guys that would just oh you know just will themselves to go. That Possibly, extra. I think I think I think. I'm not sure it's made that as much difference in racing as people think, because I think they, you know, all the riders know, even if you took away the power meters, if, you know, they're still going to use them in training. So they're still going to know what they're kind of capable of. I think where it has made a difference is that the accessibility to good training is now very much more uniform. And so the level of the Peloton as a whole is just much more uniform. And so we can't, it's impossible to do these crazy attacks because you can't on your own make the difference versus everyone else in the same way that you perhaps, you know, I would imagine the the difference between your Armstrongs and your Ulrichs and your Pantanis and then the kind of the kind of pack fodder to use a, you know, slightly derogatory term would have been much greater. Well, I suppose they had power meters, but you know, not everyone trained with a power meter even back in the ton of early 2000s. Whereas I think now everyone trains with a power meter most likely every professional has a coach they all know what they're doing and they're all very very fit even the kind of guys who are at the bottom some of them have really good doctors as well (laughs) (laughs) don't mention any names Matthew our lawyers aren't (laughs) no no we're not getting this one cut down (laughs) is there anything that um anything that you think made a, a big old difference Matthew so rather than looking at big global trends this question inspired 
um, for me, I was thinking about a specific incident and an example of tech going horribly wrong was the infamous 2010 Chaingate incident where Andy Schleck dropped his chain at the worst possible moment when he was dueling with Alberto Contador. It cost him almost the exact number of seconds that he went on to lose the tour by. And it was just an example where if he had a chain catcher, probably wouldn't have happened. It was such a tiny, tiny tech detail where it, it totally screwed things up for him. And I mean, interestingly, Contador and Schleck were riding, they were both riding the same group set in that race. They're both riding 10-speed SRAM Red, I think. Um, so you can't blame one or the other, but it was just a terrible moment that really <laughs> threw into focus how unfair racing can seem. But then, of course, subsequently, Alberto Constable was stripped of that win anyway. So <laughs> using another bit of tech funny. that he wasn't quite allowed to use, perhaps. Yes, indeed. Are there any other um, iconic moments where, where tech has either let down or, or, or really... Uh, yeah, I guess actually let down is the most interesting bit. I mean, we've seen scenes of, uh, was it Wiggins kicking his rear mech so it would work and all sorts of bits and pieces. You often see mechanics hanging out of car windows, you know, adjusting a little uh, limit score on a drain. You know, it, it's pretty cool from a from a tech point. But any other issues like that that we can remember? Well, of course, you know, there's always punctures, right? Mm. Pe- people always have seem to have punctures at the worst possible time. And I'm sure you could, you could pick out kind of any race where people have a puncture. But obviously... You know, there was quite a tragic one where I think Yaseba Balocchi obviously famously fell in front of Armstrong on that tour descent. I think he had, I can't, I don't know if his tub rolled off or he had a puncture that caused him to fall. But, you know, obviously either one of those, a puncture or a kind of tub rolling off the rim on a fast descent. I mean, you know, he, he broke his leg, I think. and it kind That of, was career ending, wasn't it? It was career ending. So that was a pretty bad tech failure. Um, yeah. I think I think Matthew's one is really good because obviously that happened and he dropped his chain and like like Matthew said a chain catcher would have saved him but kind of you know kind of interestingly still no one runs chain catchers a few do I think to be a fair few a few do. do well it's more of a it's, it's more of a chain catcher kind of protector on the bottom bracket so you don't get chain stuck rather than you know rather than a chain retention device because that was the big trouble is like chain got stuck so it took so long to free um, I mean the one like where where prosaic tech actually really helped this wasn't in the tour it's just um something i remember reading about a few years ago it was actually in the giro um back in the 50s and um it was fiorenzo magni he he crashed and broke his clavicle um but because of the tech they were using then in bar tape which is essentially it was cloth he unwrapped the bar tape held the bar tape in his teeth to steer one side of the bar and held on with his other hand and he still finished second I mean that—that's like you know, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the metal of the man and some really interesting tech. You couldn't do that with modern bar tape because it just tear. But you know, made out of cloth, you can you know you can make a steering implement. Now this actually kind of leads us onto um, the last little topic that we wanted to talk about. And so I was recently in France, very luckily got there and back before any um, any quarantines happened. And um, where I was saying there's a, a poster of, you know, like a, of the Tour de France from back in, I think it was the 30s, it was like an advert for the 1932 or something like that. And, you know, literally back in the day, they just round, round, rode around the perimeter of France um, in about six stages or something utterly mental like that. Um, on bikes with, you know, fixed or you know carrying a, an inner tube slung across their shoulders so um what what did the bikes look you know we've, we've gone over 100 years of, of tour de france's now what were the bikes looking like you know we've done modern tech let's do old school tech matthew what was uh what was the first tour bike well, like 
Um, it wouldn't look that out of place propped up against a hipster cafe. You're talking about a very slacked out, heavy steel fixed gear bike. There was obviously no derailleurs, no freewheels. Changing gear meant usually either flipping a wheel, I think, or actually you would have to change a cog, which over the course of these immensely long stages was something that you could feasibly do. Uh, I checked and apparently 18 kilos thereabouts was the sort of weight you were looking at and you'd have wooden rims alongside a heavy steel frame was well i mean that that brings me brings me back to um um the wonder that is campagnolo because um when mr campagnolo was just a racer the one thing he hated was having to stop unscrew his back wheel to flip over to change to his climbing gear because you just have one cog either side hence he invented the quick release just to make that process faster and the whole wow. campag empire started from that you know from from that very thing I mean, these guys were, you know, absolutely nails. I guess the uh, some of the most advanced sort of technology they're able to use was um, synthetic stimulants. A few amphetamines <laughs> here and there, maybe some brandy. I don't know. All yeah, helps, right? Different, different world back then. I don't, you know, I think I don't think we can be too hard on these people because it, it, yeah, it. If you, if you, if as you say, if you look at the kind of racing they were doing, it, it was sort of superhuman, and that was kind of the point. You know, Henri de Grange was famously you know, a bit of a, a masochist. And, you know, I, I in, in researching this, I, I, I realized that well, I, f- I found out that derailers were banned for, for around 34, 35 years after they were invented, before they were allowed in Tour de France in 1937. Yeah, exactly. He said it, he said it was cheating. It would be better to, better to triumph with the, with your strength rather than with you know, derailers, which is, you know, obviously just incredible. Yeah. I mean, you have to think of those, those early 20th century editions of the tour. They were, Effectively, they were gravel races because none of those none of those mountain roads were ever metal. They weren't, you know, they had no surface, so it, it was effectively a huge gravel race. Yeah, and it had it had more in common with kind of long distance kind of audaxing now than what we yeah. would regard as professional racing because the stages were incredibly long and kind of continuous over days, weren't they? It wasn't like you race for five hours and then you have a massage and a shower the way it is now. What What do you think would happen if? Um if the ASO decided for 2022 they're going to rip off the uh, 1928 route around the tour, <laughs> <It would be, laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, they work on yeah. TV, would it? They couldn't anymore because, like, like Wells says, the, the roads didn't used to be tarmacked, but they are now. I suppose you know. I think the first time they went over the the Galibier, it must. Can you imagine? You know, for anyone who's ever ridden the Galibier, it's one. It's a really, you know, an incredible climb. Uh, but doing it on tarmac is bad enough. But if you, if you, as well said, if you had to do that on gravel, I mean, Jack Luke would love it because it's a fixed gear gravel race or a fixed gear gravel Audax. It'd be perfect for his uh, surly steamroller. I do think there's a realistic prospect that we might see some actual gravel in the tour someday. I mean, they've done more with mixing in cobbled sections in recent years, and we see a lot more road races going on to like Strada Bianchi style terrain. I think people would love it if there was some actual gravel in the tour. Whether or not the teams would be entirely happy, I don't I mean, know. A lot of brands have their aero gravel bikes. So it would, well, that's it would, true, yeah. Makes sense, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see a return to some of the um, the esoteric things of the you know sort of pre-war tours. You know, where where riders would effectively, because they were so poorly supported, they would effectively do rates. So they'd stop outside a cafe, run in, <laughs> literally grab whatever bottles or whatever they could, run out, get on their bikes, and, and clear off. So you see, you know, some of the early sort of 1930s pictures of 
you know, 1920s, 1930s pictures of rising the tour. They're riding along swigging from bottles of red wine that you know they've just stolen from a cafe, or like ridden past and stolen it off a table or whatever. So I, I want to see a return to that. I'll be all over that. So, I mean, maybe their GPSs might give their location away a little bit more than yeah. <laughs> they'd hope. And let's let should we just quickly look forward then? And, and um, what what sort of tech would we? I, I would say though, we do need to actually define what is the single best innovation that that we've seen in the tour. Yeah, you know, and my 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 vote for that would be Shimano STI nineteen ninety. You know, they they move shifting up onto the bars, so riders no longer have to take their hands off the bars. You know. Um, I think it was Phil Anderson at TVM was the, was one of the first riders to ever use it, and, and that changed cycling forever. You know, because of that simple thing that you didn't have to take one hand off the bars, reach down to change gear, you could just do it all. You know, so you could keep the power on, you could keep, you know, you could shift going through corners, you could do, you know, all of those things. It, it, it just changed everything forever. Do you think we're going to see any of those step changes in the future? Do you think what what tech might we have coming up? Um, is there anything that's going to stand out in five, ten years as being iconic when we have this chat on the Bike Radar podcast in uh, 2041? I don't know, Matthew? I'd, I think iconic's probably the wrong word, but tubeless tyres have been in the wind for such a long time for road. They, you know, they have cropped up in several pro races in the last few years. It does feel like we might finally reach that point where pros can be persuaded to abandon their tubulars and that would be a pretty huge change because fundamentally the tyre technology hasn't really changed for about a century in that it's been a tyre glued to the rim. So going tubeless would be quite cool from the point of view of those of us in the bike industry because it would mean that what the pros are riding can also be what most people choose to ride for a hobby because most of us can't be asked with tubulars, but I think most of us would benefit from going tubeless. I guess in the same vein, disc brakes is absolutely you know, yeah we're still seeing races one with rem brakes but i guess that's now in the minority for well there haven't been much racing this year but i suspect if there had been it would have been a minority this year so maybe it all comes down to um what the uci will or won't allow in the future will they allow us you know more error will they allow us to race recumbents who knows i mean i'm sure <laughs> they're they're faster around the course than a, a normal bike but um we'll uh we'll we'll reconvene in, in 20 years time as i say just in time for the uh <laughs> the 2040 Tour de France um, and see, we'll look back on the 2021 and think, well, that was a weird year, wasn't it? Actually, we'll live in. Um, and on that note, I think uh, I'll say thanks very much to Simon, Matthew and Warren. Thanks for your insights. Thank you. And <laughs> Sorry, was that our key to talk? That was a key to say goodbye. <laughs> thanks very much, Dom. I love Thank you. you. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Don't forget, obviously, um, please do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast. Um, We are bringing a series of tour specials throughout um, what we hope will be a Tour de France for 2020. Um, And once again, apologies for any poor sound recording. Um, We're still at home. Um, Microsoft Teams is still sending our laptops absolutely bonkers. Um, So we hope it hasn't intruded too much on this recording. Right, bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.